This morning is the first Sunday after Christmas, and I trust you've all had a wonderful Christmas time with family and uh, friends, and uh, that you had some joy and peace. We had in our home a lot of noise, a lot of kids, <laughs> 14 on Christmas were in our home, and so uh, it was wonderful, uh, uh, chaotic, <laughs> it was it was delightful to see family members interacting. I think that's one of the uh, special things about Christmas is that um, it, it really is a time when families gather together and enjoy one another. And when you have little tiny kids running around, uh, it's fun watching them tear open their presents, you know, especially a two-year-old. Jan had packed up some gifts and put them in a sled under the tree with, you know, a reindeer pulling it or something, just as a decoration. Is that right? Well, the boxes were empty. But the boxes were empty, but they were all nicely done up and had bows on them. And, uh, of course, when Christmas was over, the, the paper wrapping had been torn off the empty boxes. <laughs> so that has to be done next year. You could tell the kids were excited about presents, and so they just grabbed whichever present they could <laughs> to open up, and, and uh, so much for decorations. Um, the text that I have been preaching from in Luke chapter 2 for the last uh, four weeks. And I looked at four different aspects from a very traditional Christmas text that uh, I'm sure we've all heard and have read. I know that in our family uh, we would meet around the Christmas tree and my father would read the text. When I got older he would ask me to read it. I read it to all of my kids and uh, this Christmas morning we went to my son's down in Wilmington and he said be sure to bring your Bible and he told his boys this is the way we did Christmas when I was growing up and we had to read the, the scripture from Luke chapter 2 and have a prayer and then got into the presence and it was, it was a wonderful experience but how often do we sit there and read this and have heard sermons uh, galore. I've even listened to sermons, people talking about Nazareth, what good thing can come out of Nazareth, and why does it have to be Bethlehem? I've heard several online services. Everybody goes around and, and does different things, and I'm sitting there thinking, what can we hear that's new about this I think a lot of preachers try to preach something that they think might be new, even though they may not have read that in Ecclesiastes there's nothing new under the sun. <laughs> but the truth is that of all the things that we hear and put together, we come up with ideas about Christmas that may have absolutely nothing to do with what actually happened around the birth of Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Just because we keep reading the same thing and we bring our cultural background with us into that situation. Now, look at this here. Here we have um, wise men. They do have beards, 
but if you look at them, they look very Caucasian. They do not look Semitic at all. They may have come from Azerbaijan rather than from Iraq. <laughs> if I look at Mary and Joseph, these are definitely Western pictures. And the fact that the baby Jesus, I love this. This is a beautiful thing. Don't get me wrong. I love the decoration, okay? But when the wise men came to see Jesus, it was at least he was at least two years old and wouldn't be that small in a manger. So we end up having this picture that here is Mary and Joseph in a barn that looks like it could have come from West Virginia or North Carolina, and it has nothing to do with the actual situation that was in the Middle East. Now, if I go to Japan, all those characters will look very much like they were Japanese. And if I look at some of the great masterpieces of the past, of the great artists, when they are drawing pictures of Mary and Joseph and the people round about, they're all wearing uh, armor from the 15th century or the 13th century. I'm sitting there looking at these things. We have applied so much that we really tend to sit there and think, does this reflect the actual events? And is it important that we actually know what the actual events were? How in the description of what's going on, what is the primary focus that Luke has in telling us the story that we have retold in so many different ways over so many different years, decades, centuries, that we come up with thoughts or ideas that may have little or may have a lot to do with what the actual event was about. So let's um, take a look again at both Luke chapter 2, and I'm going to read from verse 6 to 14, um, and then I'm going to turn to our actual text for what would have normally been today in uh, chapter 13, and I'm going to look at verses 22 to 24. All right, Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 6. And it came about that while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord? And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. 
And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. And it came about that when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, that the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came in haste. That was interesting. They came in haste and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. And when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in their heart. The shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had seen and heard, just as had been told them. And then in Luke chapter 13, verse 22. And he was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter by the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Father, I pray that you would bless these readings to our hearts this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, um, when I start to look at this, the first thing that comes up to me is that they made their way to Bethlehem, and they were looking for the Holiday Inn Express, and it was full up. <laughs> Maybe it was Motel 8. Maybe it was the Roadway Inn. I don't know that any of that is, has anything to do with their concept of the inn in Bethlehem, one inn in Bethlehem. It wasn't a major tourist spot, but you would have places where people could go. But this man, Joseph, and his wife, both from the lineage of David, when they arrive, they have royalty in their blood. When they arrive into Bethlehem, they're going to find somebody who has, in the simplest form, you've got to imagine that these houses that they lived in that were for poor people, primarily, they would have their, um, there would be an anteroom where the animals that belonged to that family would stay, particularly at nighttime, rather than being out on a farm. Think about this, that in our country, you have great big pieces of farmland, and the farmer builds his house on his land. In Germany, you would never do that because you had a walled city where people could protect themselves from marauders when everything was different. So you would have within that walled city your house, and your house would be attached to a, to a barn that was a part of the house, and there would be a big gate going to the inside so that 
the, they would know where, the animals would know where to go when they came back in off the fields. But you could lock everything up within the city wall. In the morning, when the gates were open to the city, you could go outside to your fields and everybody would have their own field outside. But you wanted to make sure everything was protected. Now you move to Switzerland, and in Switzerland, you have these huge chalets that are up on, on the Alps, great big mountains, right? And what happens is that they put their cows and their sheep underneath in what we would call the basement. See, the house would be built on, on, a, on an incline like this so that the animals would come in at the bottom level and you would live at the top level so that the heat would rise from the animals to heat up the house. And if somebody came to maraud the area, there were plenty of places that you knew where to hide in the mountains to keep yourself safe. That's one of the reasons why Switzerland to this day has still remained a neutral country is because it is so difficult to conquer. Now, you move to the Middle East, you have an entirely different kind of weather pattern. I, I remember swimming both in the Mediterranean and in the Red Sea on January 1st. I can remember swimming in the Dead Sea any time of the year that we went. Well, you didn't swim, you sort of sat in it because the water would keep you buoyed up, you know. And, and you, you did your best not to get your head underwater and when you got out, you had to take a shower because uh, all the salt was just caked onto your body and onto your swimming suit and everything. But you can sit in the Dead Sea and read a newspaper. You have pictures of that all the time. But because of that, you had special houses that were built very simply, like one-room houses made out of clay. And you would have a dome on the top or a flat roof. And the reason for that is because as the heat would come down, it would cool off the inside because of the, the uh, moisture that was in the air. And it had a, a kind of air conditioning that would be cooler inside the house in the hot weather. I'm sitting there going, it was absolutely brilliant. But the, the thing was that you would then have a place next door to your house and there would be a way to feed the animals through that so you would go up some stairs so the level where you lived or you'd have a one-room house that had a door that you have some stairs that go up and it would be a different level you could then feed through mangers the the uh, the animals that were in the building right next to it and if you had a little bit more money, you might add a guest room on to the other side. Now, it's very possible when people realized, here are folks coming in who are of royal blood, they would open their homes to those travelers. So when I'm sitting here reading this, they were there for some time. Why? Because it says it came about that while they were there, the days were completed. Days. They didn't just show up, and when they got there, she didn't just have the baby when they arrived. Now, I'm sitting there looking at all these different things that don't necessarily fit into the picture, 
that I have that was in the Nativity movie that showed at the end that the shepherds and the wise men all showed up at the same time on the day that Jesus was born. Now, I read about this. I, not, I have no idea, okay, because I didn't live then. But Dr. Kenneth Bailey, who uh, teaches at Concord Seminary, uh, wrote a book. He spent many years, actually, we met him. Um, my folks knew uh, him and his family. My stepmother knows him as well. But he has written several books in both English and Arabic. And uh, he wrote a book called Jesus Through Mediterranean Eyes. And he actually deals with this whole issue of the house that they lived in that had a manger. Uh, now that's slightly different than how we have imagined it. It's possible. It's also possible that maybe there was some kind of a stall on the edge of the town. But if you were actually inside of Bethlehem, there would have been buildings of some kind, as simple as they were. What we do know is that it wasn't a palace, it wasn't a mansion, it wasn't something that was big, that uh, showed a lot of money or resources. Now, the second thing that I'm looking at in this particular passage is, and this brings me back to trying to understand the intention that Luke had when he started to write this. Um, a lot of people have discussed when did the census take place, when did all of this actually happen, there's been a lot of discussions about that. I don't even think that was important to Luke. I think Luke is sitting there rather than, in this case, being absolutely positive about historical events taking place, he is coming to show us that there is a prophetic means that God wants to communicate to us something of value and of great importance that takes place during this event. So if I take a look at this and I'm looking at the prophecies that were spoken about why Bethlehem was important for the Messiah to be born. Why was it important that they went to the, the home of the shepherd king, who was the greatest king of Israel? His name was David. Why are they going there? Why does the scripture point out that Bethlehem is critical how is it that the Romans have to set up all this event of, of, a, of a census in order to get the mother and father of the one who are going to care for this baby Jesus from Nazareth to Bethlehem? That's got to be an incredible event so that the scriptures can be fulfilled, that the prophetic word is going to come to pass. Now, here, here's an interesting thing. I found this in Micah, and we've all read this in Micah, in chapter 5 and verse 2. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, 
Too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. He has said Bethlehem. Ephrata means it's the agricultural center. And that's where we're going to see the one that God's going to raise up, the messianic prophecy from Micah. So here we've got now the agricultural city just outside of Jerusalem. And I have walked that from Jerusalem to Bethlehem on Christmas Eve. I have been on shepherd's fields where we sang Christmas carols. Uh, I remember Art Linkletter. You might be old enough to remember Art Linkletter who did the the kids say the darndest things. He did that. He was one of the speakers on the shepherd's fields that I attended when I was a little boy in, uh, on, the, on the shepherd's fields outside of Bethlehem. Now, here we've got this route between Bethlehem and Jerusalem. It takes a couple hours to walk it, uh, and I've done it. And, and it's, uh, it was special, had special meaning to me to actually be within the area where Jesus uh, was born and raised and lived. What I have never heard until this year, which is interesting, but a Dr. Uh, Ezra, um, let me get his name correctly here, Soref, Dr. Ezra Soref. He's an Israeli and a Messianic Jew, and he started to examine these prophecies in Micah chapter four, uh, 5 and then also in chapter 4. And this is one that was new to me, and in verse 8 of Micah chapter 4, it says this, And as for you, tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it will come, even the former dominion will come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. And I never really had read that. I never really asked the question, what's the tower of the flock? And so this was quite an interesting event for me when I'm looking at the purpose of why is Luke informing us of all of these prophetic things. The tower of the flock was the field outside of um, Bethlehem that belonged to King David. And when he came to bring the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem, and he was going to reestablish the, the, the temple. He was going to build this temple to God uh, where he had the tent, uh, uh, the tabernacle of David, the place where God's presence was in the city of peace. He was going to bring uh, the, the offerings that were that were going to be made no longer in a tent, but in a temple that was going to be built. He had to have a lamb for the Passover that the priests were going to sacrifice 
that was going to be without spot or blemish of any kind. And so the place where those sheep were raised for the purpose of sacrifice within the temple grounds was going to be from the field of David just outside the city of Bethlehem where there were towers set up so that the shepherds would dwell there to take care of their flocks. The tower of the flock, though, was for the special, the special sheep that were being raised without spot or blemish. Now, Dr. Ezra Soroff, who has apparently studied this, and I haven't, okay, I'm making a disclaimer here, but this is fascinating to me, says that the rabbinic tradition was that they would come to the tower of the flock to select the sheep that was going to be used for the Passover sacrifice. And they would take the sheep and put the sheep in a manger, and as they would put the sheep in the manger, that would give them the height to begin to inspect that sheep throughout every aspect. It could have no spots, no broken bones. They had to look at every aspect that the sheep was totally perfect in every way. And then they would wrap that sheep up in cloths so that they would carry the sheep so that nothing would happen to it on the way from Bethlehem to Jerusalem to be brought for the offering. So, if that is true, that that is the the understanding of what the rabbis were doing in order to bring the, the sheep from the tower of the flock to Jerusalem, and they're bringing the perfect sheep, and they are protecting that sheep while they're bringing him into Jerusalem. I'm sitting there thinking, that is an incredible thing. When the angel said this, this will be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger, those shepherds who were the shepherds in the tower of the flock would have an entirely different understanding from the prophetic side of things about what was going on. They would have immediately known that this is the Messiah and that this is the one who is going to redeem all of Israel and the good news is for all people. In other words, it's not just in Bethlehem that he's going to be born, but it has to do with the tower of the flock. And here you have the birth of Jesus already prophetically aligned with his death. I was reading Dr. Uh, All these doctors, right? (laughs) Dr. Kenneth Bailey, Dr. Ezra Soroff, and this is another one, Dr. Uh, Timothy Johnson, who I believe is a brilliant scholar, and I have uh, really gleaned a lot uh, from him, I, I must admit. And he makes the suggestion, he says, we don't know everything about this. But what is absolutely fascinating is that Jesus is wrapped in cloths, laid in a manger, in a foreign place. 
He, he, he is wrapped in cloths, laid in a manger in a place that wasn't his. And he says, could that really, those three things, could that be foreshadowing, foretelling the fact that Jesus, when he's taken down from the cross, is going to be wrapped in linen cloths, laid in a hewn-out grave that had never been used before. That here is not just the events surrounding his birth that have been foretold from long ago to show that he is going to be the savior of the world, but in his birth is already the prophetic utterance demonstration foretelling that this baby was born to die for sin and that he was going to be the perfect without spot or blemish without any sin was going to be the one to take sin away I am sitting there looking at all of these different things now like you I wasn't there <laughs> but I'm sitting in thinking these things through and I'm going there are so many so many aspects that are foretelling the birth of Jesus that he fulfills and then when we get to where we're actually at in Luke chapter 13 what's happening is Jesus starting in chapter 9, is making his way to Jerusalem and he's stopping off in all the towns and villages along the way, proclaiming to them the kingdom of God and he's making his way all the way knowing, and that comes up later in chapter 13, that no prophet dies outside of Jerusalem. That this prophet, who is the Son of God, who has been speaking the Word of God that nobody can withstand, and that the crowds are gathering around, they come up to him, and the interesting question that somebody throws out to Jesus, are only a few going to be saved? He's come to the right place to ask the question. He's come to the Savior of mankind. He's come to the lamb who's on his way to be slaughtered. He's talking to the one who is going to be the sacrifice once and for all to take away the sins of the whole world. And he wants to know how many are going to make it. Is this just for Israel? Or are there only going to be some within Israel that are going... You see, Jesus spent as much time at, at, in the houses of sinners as he did in the houses of the Pharisees, eating with people. He, he doesn't seem to care what kind of sinner you are when he comes to eat with you. <laughs> he doesn't care whether your, your sins are great or whether your sins seem to be small. He comes to dwell with people and to expose them to the character and the nature of a heavenly father who has an outpouring of love that he was willing to send his son into this world to die, to take away our sin. 
And the question becomes an important one. He says, the questioner here, we don't know whether it was man or woman, but just somebody from the crowd shouts out, are many going to be saved? And the response of Jesus is incredible to me. His response basically is this. You need to know for yourself if you are saved. See, the, the way is narrow. As a matter of fact, there's only one way to get to the Father. <laughs> there is no other way. There's only one way. It's kind of like the ark that Noah built had one door. <laughs> there was only one way to get into the ark. If you wanted to be saved in the flood, you had to go in that door, and you had to go in when Noah invited everybody to come. He spent a hundred years inviting people to come while he built this boat <laughs> with his sons. He's building this huge boat thing out there on dry land and he's telling everybody you need to come in and when the when the door is shut there's no more getting in there's no handle on the outside and so the rains come down the people who wanted to get in at that point it's too late there's only one way to get in there's only one way to get to the father no man comes to the father but through me, is what Jesus said. The narrow gate is a person. The narrow door, I am the door. The door to life, the door to eternity, the door into the presence of God who changes and transforms our hearts, our minds, our lives. There's only one way and it's through the person of Jesus. There's no other way. It's not... That all religions point to God. All religions point to man's attempts to reach God and they all fail. The only reason why we have access to the Father is because there was a Lamb of God who died to take away the sins of the whole world and He was the only one without sin, without blemish. He was the perfect Lamb of God who was chosen way back then when he was born. And on his way to Jerusalem, where the prophets are killed, he knows that what he is about, his whole focus and his whole purpose, is to fulfill the purpose and calling of God to redeem all those who will come to him. That becomes an incredible perspective when I'm sitting here looking at all these things that Jesus fulfilled in terms of looking for a Messiah, looking for a deliverer, looking for someone that's going to set us free, who will set me free from this life within me, the guilt and the shame and the upset? Who can deliver me from that which is in my life, which is sin that has destroyed? There is someone who will do it and who can do it and who has made the way. And it only happens when we yield to him, surrender to him, confessing our sins and asking him to deliver us. He's the one that does it. 
He's the one who does it. That was his purpose. And everything that Luke points out is that he chooses poor people. He chooses simple people. The, the, the shepherds on their way to Bethlehem know that they're not looking for a palace, but that they're looking for a simple house that would be like something that they were accustomed to, that they would feel comfortable in, that they wouldn't feel like they were being sent away. You, you can't come. <laughs> but here they are. They have arrived. And they see the Savior. They're looking and they understand something about what's happening that is really hidden from the eyes of even the religious people who should have known better. And they get up and start telling everybody about what they've just experienced. What a story to tell, isn't it? What a story to tell. They came from the tower of the flock and they found the perfect Lamb of God. <laughs> and we look at it 33 years later and here's Jesus on that route making his way through the towns and villages knowing that this is his purpose and he is going to fulfill all the scriptures that were pointing to him all of the prophecies all of the foretelling he's going to fulfill it. I love the fact that Jesus, in response to the question, are many going to be saved? He says, well, you know, the question really needs to be posed to you and your heart. It's not up to us to determine how many. <laughs> God can save however many he wants. <laughs> But the question needs to be asked, am I being saved? Am I in the place where the transforming power of God is changing both my heart and my mind? And I believe that's something that we experience when we first come to Jesus. It's something that we need to continually experience in our walk with Jesus. And one day... <laughs> One day we're just going to open our eyes and we're going to see him like he really is. And our lives are going to be so transformed. Our bodies will be transformed. Our understanding will be expanded. That the things that we talk about now and are looking at darkly and maybe we're seeing it correctly or maybe we're seeing a little aspect of it, but then we're going to know it because we're going to see him face to face. We're going to stand before him with confidence and assurance. What an incredible offer that the Lord God has thought up and created as an avenue for us to experience his salvation. Father, I want to thank you for your word, that your word is powerful today as it always has been. 
regardless of whether we understand it culturally in the context in which it was written or in our own context, you still use it to bring about the change in our lives to transform us. You are so capable to touch our lives and to change us from glory to glory into the image of Jesus. And we ask, Lord, that you would continue to do that in Jesus' name.